Welcome back to the Forever Student, everybody. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Today, we have Joseph Ockelberry on the show. Joseph and I connected a few months ago through a mutual friend, John Sane. If you haven't checked out his episode, make sure to do so. And we really, really got along. He has a fascinating background, effectively going from corporate to really going through the spiritual journey over five, six years and double downing on that. Um, he's focused a lot on self-development, on self-help, on spiritual practices, and he's going to talk about all those things today. He is a fascinating, fascinating person, a lot to learn from, and I really, really hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Joseph Oakleberry, welcome to The Forever Student. Thank you. Thank you, Stefan. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. We got connected by our mutual friend, John, uh, who's been on the show before and is a good friend of yours. I, uh, I spoke to you about a week ago, or two weeks ago, and I was so, so mesmerized by your story because it's such a unique story, I feel. And um, we're currently sitting here. I'm in Dubai. You're, you're in Cape Town. And I think the first question I have for you is like, how did you, how did you end up in Cape Town? I think Cape Town kind of found me. I was working in New York City. It was 2010. I was feeling like something was seriously missing from my life. I was working on average about 80 hours a week. Up to one week was 99 hours. And I didn't have much of a life beyond that, uh, working on Wall Street. And I just felt like there's there's got to be more to this existence than what I'm doing currently. And I set this intention, probably kind of mid 2010, that I that I wanted to leave the United States, live somewhere else in the world, to shake things up. I was about 34 at the time, and I wanted to. I didn't know where I was going to go. I didn't know what job um, I would be doing. I didn't know anything. Just set this intention, and I felt I felt deep down inside that it would be good for me to live outside the United States, to broaden my perspectives, to see the world from a different set of eyes. And then I got a phone call at my desk. Um, when you're when you're a research analyst, your name and phone number and email are everywhere. They're printed on every published report. So this recruiter just kept calling me. Uh, Christo every week uh, kept calling me about this job in South Africa, and I, I wasn't quite ready for that uh, for the universe to answer my intention so quickly. But uh, after a few calls, he mentioned Cape Town, and I thought, "Wow, that would be special." I've heard amazing things about Cape Town, so then I, I entertained the offer, and and mostly I just wanted to visit Cape Town to see it. So I took the job interview and. And um, came down for four days. Work was extremely intense at the time at Morgan Stanley. We were working on LinkedIn's IPO, Pandora's IPO, Facebook's IPO, Groupon's IPO. It was like a very, very busy time. And uh, my boss, who was a mentor and a friend, um, I brought him in the loop and told him that I was thinking about leaving. And he was supportive if I found the right role. Um, but he said, I can't lose you for, for very many days right now. So just make it a quick out and back. And um, 
came down, flew Table Mountain, went to a U2 concert, interviewed with Naspers, and immediately knew that this would be my next, the next chapter of my life would be in Cape Town. What, what was sort of the tell sign of this is it? Like, this is the right move? I think I had grown up in Seattle and overlooked the importance of nature and space and quality of life. I remember when I moved to New York for the first time in 2000, I was beyond excited. Um, I, I, I was just every single thing, the lights, the, the taxis, the subway, everything. And, and I didn't see any of the negatives of New York. Um, I didn't see any of the trash, any of the smells, uh, any of the fact that most of the streets are covered in shade because of the tall buildings. And then after 10 years in New York City, I started to feel very differently about it. And I think once I got to Cape Town, hiked Table Mountain, looked back at the ocean, I just felt like my my soul kind of knew that there was a connection to nature that had been lost. And uh, I think it was rekindled here. And was there anything around like, so th there's obviously a change of scenery big time. I spent five years in New York and I definitely know what you're talking about. Um, but there was also obviously a change in in work, right? Like there's a change in the type of company you're going to work for, the type of boss you're going to work for. Was there anything there that was like, okay, this just makes me feel like this is the right move? Yeah. I When I interviewed at Naspers, I had the the extreme delight to meet with Chris Becker, who is the chairman, was the CEO for a couple of decades. And, um, and I met with three other executives there. And the conversations I had were, were so real, so authentic, deep. We talked about life. We talked about travel, culture, history. It was much more broad than a, than kind of a, a laser focused interview trying to find out if the job would be a good fit in a direct way and it was it was a breath of fresh air from kind of the investment banking wall street where it, it was very competitive and very uh demanding in a way that was i felt like i was trying to fit in i was trying to fit in to a certain role i was trying to be a certain person to succeed in that place as opposed to tapping into who I was and what were my unique gifts and then sharing those through a role. And at Naspers, I just had a lot more leeway to express my creativity um, as part of it. So the team was just exceptional. Um, I, I, I loved pretty much every minute of working there over those six years and still remain friends with them to this day. Just a, an incredible company. That's amazing. And, and did you also, I mean, you mentioned you were working 80, sometimes 90 hours a week in New York. Did that change when when you moved to South Africa? The The work was still extremely intense. It was different, though. I wasn't being told what to do um, at NASPER so much. What would happen was Kuz was very inquisitive, and he would have these curiosities. One curiosity he had is, Joe, is there any chance we can go enter the U.S. classifieds market and disrupt Craigslist? And so my team and I would would dive in and do research on that that kind of hypothesis or or question. And 
where we took our research and and what kind of analysis we did and and the conclusions was was all up to us um and we collaborated with many other internal experts who'd worked in the industry to try and shape our thinking but there was really like a, a clean slate you know to start with uh with just a just a concept and then we were off running with it and i think that really that really jived well with my um my need to be creative and express and and i also have this quality of i love surprising people i love i hosted a surprise party last night for a friend who's moving tomorrow to go to the world cup um i i love surprises so the idea that i could go on this quest to find out all this information and then and then share my thinking with the group uh, i really enjoyed that unveiling you know what we'd accomplished and also i guess you felt and your team must have felt very empowered which which maybe in the investment banking sphere especially in the US might not be like one of the top qualities of of working there. Yeah, fully. I I mean the role I had was at Naspers was extremely unique. Uh I don't think it exists many places. And um investment banking and and equity research, the very defined roles, there's many people doing the same job, you know, you're all kind of benchmarked against each other. Um you really are trying to fit into to the mold of what that role very specifically asks for. I think what's what's cool about the move that you did is two things. One is that you you took a risk, right? Like moving from the country that you grew up in to a country that you've maybe have never visited really properly and and have spent time in and is obviously culturally very diff- different than what you're used to in Seattle and in New York. And secondly is like you took a step back to analyze where you are in life. Right? Like I think when you were in New York, and for a lot of people listening, right, when you're in a nine to five or nine to seven or nine to nine, um, it's very easy to get stuck in this cycle where you don't really take a step back and think about like what is it that I actually want to do? Where is it that I want to live? Um is that like is that a conscious thing that happened when you when you were in New York or did it just sort of catch you by by surprise like was the element of surprise just like being approached by the headhunter and, and you then thinking oh you know what maybe it's time for a change one of my favorite teachers is michael singer he wrote the surrender experiment the untethered soul and and most recently living untethered and what he says it it finally clicked for me what happened but he says when you enter a spiritual journey um call it a hero's journey call it a personal growth journey whatever you want he calls it spiritual um you will always enter a spiritual journey be- because you've gotten tired of of trying to do things one way and realizing that they're not getting you what you want and so it's almost like a case of surrender saying i give up i've been trying certain things they're not working i give up i surrender let me go on this seeking journey where i don't have any preconceived ideas of where it's taking me he said if if you have a an idea of where you're going that's not a spiritual journey uh because that's your ego you know directing your path based on its wants and its you know dislikes and that's exactly what happened to me you know i found myself i'd achieved everything that i'd set out for myself you know i went to university i got good grades i got a job at the top investment banks in New York. 
I was covering internet stocks during like the heyday. Um, I was wealthy. I, you know, everything had gone according to my plan and I was depressed. And I, I just had to kind of have one of those moments where I look in the mirror and say, all right, you are not winning at the game of life. And you don't know how to win at the game of life. Because if you did, you'd be there. Um, and so it was a it was a bit of a existential crisis, a bit of an ego death, probably the first that I'd had, where I had to acknowledge that I didn't know everything. You know, and then I became very curious, very curious about all the things up until that point that I disregarded, all of the teachers and gurus and spiritual wisdom, all of the friends who had suggested things and I had mocked uh, throughout my life because I was so certain I knew the path. I had to now become more open, you know, more humble. And that kicked off, you know, really in 2010 when I hit rock bottom, uh, this journey that continues to this day and will continue the rest of my life for sure. And when you say rock bottom in 2010, was that was that depression? Yeah, I I think I was lucky. You know, I won the kind of birth lottery where I have a naturally high level of kind of happiness, if you want to call it, or positive affect. Like my emotional states generally are pretty positive. And so for me to be in a place where I don't want to go to work, I don't want to get out of bed, I I started questioning, you know, what is this a life worth living? You know, what part of my day right now or my week is worth actually doing? Because none of this is aligned for me. None of this speaks to my soul. None of this energizes me. It all drains me. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, when you, specifically in your story, it's, it's uh, I don't want to say it's typical, but but the the thing about like having your life sort of laid out in front of you, where it's like, if you do this, you will succeed. If you do this, you will be happy. And then you've done all that. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, that was it? This is not what I was expecting. And I think that's when confusion naturally sets in, right? Like you start doubting everything around you. And I'm sure that, so that's something that happened with you then. Yeah, fully. I think the fundamental shift that happened for me is that I went from focusing on trying to adjust my external environment you know, find the right job, find the right partner, get the right friends, live in the right city. All this external stuff, I was trying to align it perfectly so that I was happy. And when I had done that and still was not happy, I realized maybe I need to go inside. Maybe the answers are actually inside of me. And that's, that's what kicked off, you know, this spiritual journey. It's, it started with this realization that I don't, I don't know myself, right? And I became curious. I took countless online polls, surveys, self-report scales. I, I wanted to do the Myers-Briggs and this test called the Saboteur test from Shirzad Shamin and the Character Strengths test from the V Institute. And I and I loved everything I got. The Enneagram. I just ate it up. And that's kind of how I started 
my journey. I, it turned out that I knew nothing about myself at age 34. I didn't know what drove my behaviors, my decisions. Um, I thought I thought life was quite simple and straightforward and didn't realize how much my traumas, my path, uh, my insecurities were actually driving my behaviors and driving my decisions in life. Were there any tests that kind of stood out, like anything you would really recommend people look at? I think there's two, and they're they're very similar, but they're different. They're actually polar opposites. Um, the first is the saboteur test, and I recommend this because it was the one most powerful for me. Um, it's from Shirzad Shamin. He's a Stanford Business School professor, and what it tests for are nine saboteurs, as he calls them. You could also refer to them as shadows in the Jungian sense, and um, they are hyperachiever, hyperrational, victim, pleaser, avoider, stickler, um, a couple more. And, and basically, when you fill out this five or 10 minute survey, it just shows you relative to each other, which one of those saboteurs is most pronounced for you. And so when I took that, I, I've taken that test every year now for 11 years. and. Um, what struck me really immediately was that I had four that, that were really high. Um, my hyperachiever was very high. It meant that essentially achievements and being recognized for those achievements by the outside world was important to me. It's no coincidence that I really wanted to work at a brand name investment bank and ended up at Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan. No coincidence that I ran a half Ironman and ran a marathon, you know, all of these achievement type things. Um, I was seeking validation of who I was, you know, I needed those at the time to feel that I was important and worthy and, and that people should like me and all that stuff. Another saboteur that was very high was for me was hyper rational. I was extremely analytical. I didn't believe in anything that couldn't be proven through science. I wasn't open to any spirituality, including things that are very well-founded like meditation. So my hyper-rational mind actually caused me to be extremely skeptical and cynical. And I used to have countless arguments with, with spiritual types about everything. Uh, two other saboteurs, the other two for me, were pleaser and avoider. And a pleaser, you know, is someone who's always wants to be liked by others and is willing to sacrifice their own well-being as a result and is willing to even do things that they later resent the people that they served because they didn't really want to do it. They just, they're just stuck in that pleaser kind of mentality and avoider. That's pretty clear. Um, for me, I didn't like conflict. I didn't like difficult conversations. And so taking the saboteur test very early in my journey, I think it was 2012, January, the first time I took it, um, illuminated these, these qualities of myself that I had no idea that they were driving my behaviors. I knew that I felt these things like resentment and frustration and um, fear, anxiety, but I didn't know that those, those shadows were actually driving a lot of those behaviors. And did you, did you do anything with those insights? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So Shirzad recommends focusing on one 
the one that is either the strongest, it's on a 10 point scale. So the one that scores the highest or the one that you feel energized to tackle. And for me, the hyper rational was one of the last because I didn't feel that that was a negative at the time. Uh, I felt pretty, pretty certain that being extremely, I thought the opposite of hyper rational was irrational and I was not willing to go there. Um, there's a famous saying that, uh, says you can either be happy or you can be right. And I really wanted to be right. Um, so I chose to focus on avoider and pleaser. Those were two of my first. And I took a number of steps, but the first one was I started telling my friends about this test and started sharing my results with them. And I hosted a dinner with 20 of my favorite humans in Cape Town around 2014 and had everyone take the saboteur test in advance and send me the results. And then basically we all got together, we catered a dinner and we all shared kind of our biggest saboteurs and stories from our lives of where that had actually tripped us up. And, um, you know, I kept referring to that test every year to see my progress. Um, so I was, I was making significant strides. In fact, in all four areas, I'm a completely different human. Um, there's no, no question in 10 years. Um, some of those, especially hyper-rational, feel like a different person. You know, I've really let those ones go um, to a place of just being less black or white, you know, kind of more okay with everything less rules in life, you know, for me to be happy. And so, yeah, I, I, in fact, I was so moved by that test that I reached out to Shirzad Shamin uh, at Stanford and got him to speak at the NASPERS CEO conference. I think that would have been 2015 or 16 in San Francisco and I had all 150 executives take that saboteur test. Uh, in advance. And I got some really nice messages from people, you know, in that, in that world, not a lot of people are doing, you know, personal growth work and self-awareness. So I guess you could say once I become a fan of something, I'm, I've become quite an advocate. Um, and I think, you know, maybe originally not for the right reasons, but now, now I try and do it with love and, and only when it's, when it's the right time for the right person. Um, but I was excited to share that with everyone and, and to meet Shirzad and, and to thank him for, for what he had done for me. That's amazing. I think you were just about to go, before I interrupted you, I think you were just about to go into a different test. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Now, this one um, is more recent. I've only taken this in the last two years, and it's through the positive psychology realm. It's called the VIA Character Strengths, Values in Action. Um, it's from the VIA Institute. And basically what the founders of positive psychology did is they spent four years, three, three or four years, 55 research scientists studying ancient wisdom traditions, religions, philosophical schools of thoughts, cultures, traditions. And they tried to identify what human behaviors are universally admired. So they found that in all societies, people value courage. They also value humility. They value kindness, love, perseverance. And they, they distilled from all those sources of wisdom all the way down to 24 character strengths. And I love those 24 because I, I think it summarizes so much of the world, so much of what's right in the world and what's wrong with the world. 
people living with virtue and people living with less virtue. So I took that took that test during my master's at University of Pennsylvania um, because it was on their website and it was a required assignment. So I, it's 10 minutes long and you fill out a bunch of answers about how you would behave in certain situations. And I got the results. And the results said that my top strengths, my top virtues, virtues that come natural to me, that I can do um, and I get energized when I use them, I don't get drained, were hope, honesty, fairness, forgiveness, and kindness. Those are mine. Hope, honesty, forgiveness, fairness, and kindness. And honestly, that just really speaks to who I am. It really does. Like that, that was like, wow, that actually, that is who I am. Yeah. In many ways, those are my strengths. It's very easy for me to be honest, very easy for me to be fair. It just comes naturally to me. And when I, when I clicked on the test result uh, to see what I had received, it said it listed two results and it had different dates. And I was like, what's going on here? And five years earlier to the month, January 2016, somehow, somewhere in my journey, I had encountered this exam before, this via character strengths test, and I'd taken it. I didn't remember having taken it. So I opened it up and I realized that I've got, I've struck gold. I have now a look at how I've changed in five years. And it was unbelievable. Like exact ways that I had hoped to change, I had changed. My heart, my, so love, the virtue of love, saw the strongest growth, 61% growth in, in the, my capacity to love, to give love, to receive love had grown over those five years. Same thing with social intelligence, which is basically emotional intelligence combined with self-awareness. That was the second biggest grower. That grew 30%. Not surprising at all when you go on you know, a full-time spiritual journey. And then a couple of them had, had actually weakened and I was pretty happy about those. So perseverance. I used to be a workaholic, burned myself out on several occasions. I was quite happy to be less of a perseverer. That's not something that I really wanted to be top-notch at at this stage of my life. Um, and so the reason that this test is so powerful is that when people act virtuously, when they use these virtues, when they act kind, fair, honest, loving, forgiving, they are happier. There's a lot of science on that. Also, when they embody these virtues, the people around them become virtuous as well. There's a contagion that happens. This is what my whole master's thesis was on, was how virtuous behaviors spread, sometimes up to tens of thousands of people away. So my decision to be, let's say, really disciplined, which is a, which is a virtue, self-regulation, to eat better, work out, and get really fit. Through my example, through my influence, that can spread to all of the people in my friendship circle, maybe because we go out to eat and they see that I'm ordering a healthy dish, they want to order a healthy dish, or I have a dinner like last night, and I have it catered, and I cater healthy food, they eat healthier, and then they think, oh, I should start eating healthier in my life too. So these virtues spread throughout the world um, up to three degrees is generally what the stats show. So my behaviors influence 
my connections, my direct connections, those people's direct connections and those people's direct connections. And if you, if, if you think that, let's say I have 30 people that I influence in my life between friends and family, then, and let's say they each have 30 and then those people have 30. It's 30 times 30 times 30, 27,000 people will have a statistically significant influence from my behaviors. And the other point I'll make, the last point on this, this exam, why I love it, this virtues assessment, is that if you find any problem in the world today, I guarantee there's a lack of virtue that's at the root of it. You look at politics. There's dishonesty. There's a lack of fairness. You look at um, certain companies. Maybe they're prioritizing profit. So they're not being fair to humanity or they're not being wise, right? They're, they're near-term focused on optimizing for profit instead of people's well-being. You can pretty much even climate change, right? Humans are the one species that can't live within their own ecosystem. You know, we just want to dig, 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 consume, consume, consume. And so it's all a lack of self-control, self-awareness, wisdom, you know, fairness, right? If, if it's not our problem, you know, if I threw a bottle out in the ocean, it's not my problem anymore. It's someone else's, right? That's a lack of kindness, a lack of fairness. So I think so much of the world's problems are a lack of virtue. And this assessment does a phenomenal job of kind of giving you a glance at where you stand in those areas. I love that. And, and we'll make sure to to disclose these in the show notes, because I think it'll be very helpful for a lot of people to take, including myself. I mean, a lot of the stuff that you spoke about now resonates with me. It's things that I'm like, oh, I think, I think I'm that, or I think I'm this, but obviously there's just one way to find out. Um, we, you spoke a little bit about your, your masters. You spoke a bit about the spiritual journey that you went on. Could you touch on that a little bit more? When did that happen? How long did you do it for? And and also maybe why you did it to begin with? Sure. One of my favorite things to talk about, um, especially if other people are curious to go on, on a similar journey. And it started with you know what we spoke about in 2010, being in New York City, being depressed, going many days without seeing sunlight because I worked so early and worked so late, having no energy to be social, uh, no dating life, nothing, just work, work, work. And something flipped then that said that I need to surrender. I need to become more open, less, I need to have less conviction that I know it all. And that kicked off the journey. And it started with me moving to Cape Town, meeting new people. In New York City, most of my friends were like me. They were athletes who were male, who worked in finance, and who were white. It was like, it was like we all met through through football, you know, for this bar league, and we all got along great and we were amazing. And they're still good friends to this day. But there wasn't a lot of challenging each other's thinkings. There wasn't a lot of kind of unique thought. No one was reading about let's say spirituality or horoscopes or 
meditation. That just wasn't where, where we were at at that time in our lives. And I moved to Cape Town. Suddenly, I'm meeting people from all over the world, yoga teachers, um, spiritual guru types, and they're starting to challenge me. And they're starting to challenge me with, with intelligence and, and real insights in ways that I couldn't just easily dismiss. And so moving to Cape Town in 2011 really kind of kickstarted that journey. I, I, let's say I went in kind of part-time on that, on that seeking journey for about five years where I hired my first therapist in 2012. I joined something called the Mankind Project, which is kind of a, a nonprofit men's organization where uh, men coach and support other men. Deeply, deeply powerful. Um, hired a, a coach professionally, uh, another therapist, and I did something called the Art of Living, um, which is really beautiful as well. I did jo John D. Martini, and then I did a couple of Tony Robbins events. So that was kind of like reading books, watching TED Talks, getting a therapist and a coach. That was like the beginning of my journey. And then <clears throat> I felt like I was making progress and it was so beautiful. And I, and I thought to myself, imagine if you leaned into this even more. Like what, what would your life be like? I started to notice that things were shifting in my life. I was connecting at a much deeper level with my friends. I was um, getting much closer to finding, working on things that I really was inspired by. And because of these shifts in my life, it was like I was getting validated that this journey was, was worthwhile. So I was fortunate enough to be in a position in 2017 where I could take some time away from work and focus on myself full time. So I left in November 2017 and I, I essentially took four years off. And in those four years, I, I didn't prescript any specific plan other than it, the focus of the journey was self-awareness, self-discovery, and spirituality. And when I say spirituality, you could call it happiness. You could call it well-being. But, but basically, on trying to learn more about the ways of living, you know, the art of living. And... I kind of went after it in three different ways. Because I was a skeptic, I was unlikely to find one teacher or one guru, um, hand over all of my autonomy to them and say, take me. I, I, I love your teachings. I'm going to follow you wherever it takes me. That's just not in my nature. My nature is to be a little bit skeptical, to try things a little bit, to try other things and, and get a lot of perspectives and then form kind of an informed conclusion. So 2018, 2019, and 2020, the first year of my journey was all about leaning into that self-help stuff. Um, it was, I went to Joe Dispenza retreat in Scotland. I did more Tony Robbins events. I did something called the Hoffman process, which is in the States, in New York and Connecticut and London. Beautiful week-long intensive retreat. I walked across Spain. I did the Camino de Santiago uh, in most mostly solitude over a month. I climbed some peaks uh, around the world and spent a lot of time in nature. And that I feel like was almost like decompressing from a really intense 
17 years of corporate life where I was working two full-time jobs essentially because it was so demanding. 2018 was kind of like dropping in, you know, like, like releasing my attachment to my phone, you know, all these behaviors that I'd kind of adopted of anxiety and, and feeling like I always needed to be in touch. And that was 2018. It was dropping in, connecting with nature and doing some self-help. 2019 is when I leaned into ancient wisdom and, and more specifically Eastern spirituality. I was very curious about Buddhism. I had heard some TED Talks. I had encountered some really intelligent people. I met a, a Buddhist monk from, from Japan and we went on a hike together and it was really profound. So I went to India, Tibet, Nepal, Bhutan, Japan, Bali, and I went basically for a year going as deep as I could in Buddhism and yoga. Buddhism and yoga, not a lot of people fully understand, but they're very, very similar. They come from the same lineages back 20,000 years with the Vedas and the Upanishads. The Buddha kind of branched off from that lineage, created a, a new spiritual tradition, um, but they're very, very similar. I did my yoga teacher training in India. And because I am a skeptic, I wanted to go to the source, right? I wanted to I wanted to go study yoga in the birthplace of yoga in Rishikesh, India, you know, near the Himalayas. I wanted to go to the Dalai Lama's temple and, you know, I was able to attend his birthday, his 85th birthday. Um, I did, I, I was able to learn just from some incredible teachers over that time. And I feel like that's when I had my first real kind of awakening where things started to click. It's, I, I was now hearing a type of wisdom and a type of teaching that was very different than what I had, how I had lived my life. And it started to resonate. I started to understand, wow, okay, so if this is true, that would explain a lot. That would explain a lot of my suffering over the years. And then to wrap things up, I said, well, what, what does science have to say about well-being and happiness? So I had I'd taken those tests online, a bunch of them, uh, and, and I kept ending up at the University of Pennsylvania's website. And I'd seen this TED Talk from Martin Seligman, and I'd heard about positive psychology, and I was curious. So I did some research, and I found that Martin Seligman and, and, and others had founded this field together. Uh, in 2000, January of 2000. And they had created a master's program at the University of Pennsylvania called a Master's in Applied Positive Psychology. And it seemed like this was the best place to study positive psychology. And so I wanted to see if I could go study under the best teachers. And so I applied. I had no other plan. I didn't apply anywhere else and didn't know what I would do if I didn't get in. Um, fortunately, they they accepted me, I think largely because they could, they could feel from my essay that I was a real seeker and that I was really, really surrendered to learning everything I could, you know, without preconceived ideas, you know, going in with uh, a beginner's mind, as they say in Buddhism, where you kind of pretend you know nothing and just soak in what you're learning and save the judgments till later. And so I headed off to the States during COVID. 
I, I left South Africa for a little over a year. I wanted to immerse myself in the program. I wanted to live in Philadelphia. I wanted to meet my classmates. I wanted to really squeeze all of the juice out of that master's that I could. And then COVID hit. And then the program became 100% virtual. And they advised me there's no real reason for you to be in Philadelphia. So I ended up studying from Brooklyn, where I had my, some of my best friends live. And I, I studied the science of happiness for a year. And I have to tell you that I had a full ego death while studying the masters. All of my shadows were triggered. My, my need to achieve, my, my hyper-rationality, my pleasing caused me to really, really suffer during the program. And I suffered because I thought I had learned so much about life. And now I'm hearing a new type of teaching and a new way of thinking that seems to contradict these, these learnings from the East, at least for me, at least on the surface and where my level of wisdom was at. And I suffered. My classmates were brilliant. You know, they were, everything seemed to come so easy to them. Why was it coming so hard to me? And, and I, and I, it was like I was struggling. Everything I was being taught, I was like resisting. I was like, that doesn't make sense with my lived experience. That feels like it's going to take me back to New York to working 99 hours a week. Uh, even the master's program felt like I was back in New York working those, those crazy hours. And I think that if I were to summarize, I had figured out how to be versus do. So just be while I was on my travels, I was very good at being, I was very happy in solitude. I was very happy um, meditating in silence. And then I got jumped back into a life of doing before I was ready. I thought that I had healed my traumas. I thought that I had shined a light on my shadows. I thought that I had really evolved. But actually what I'd done is just removed all the stresses from my life. And therefore I had nothing to do, nothing to focus on. And I get thrown back in an environment that's extremely challenging. And there I am right back resorting to the exact same behaviors and, and bad habits that I had previously. I think the quote from Mike Tyson sums it up best. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. The master's degree started the very first weekend. I was way behind. They wanted us to do a month's worth of reading. I didn't have time. I was prioritizing my family uh, as I hadn't seen them in a long time. And then I got sick for six weeks. And then, you know, everything I was dealing with, heart heartbreak, it was like, the perfect storm. And through that suffering, though, I had to have this ego death. I had to realize the truth about that degree that I didn't need it. Nobody in the world is going to know what my grades were. No one, like, I don't even have to work. I'm not even going to work necessarily in a field that requires something like that. Um, why am I, why am I becoming so competitive? Why are my grades mattering? Why? Why am I so worried of what people think of me? And I had to go through that ego death and it was super painful. And I fought it for months and it didn't all 
make sense to me until after I left. You know, when I when I when I first graduated, I was still bitter and angry and frustrated. And it's only with distance could I understand that I had more growing to do. I had more healing to do. Uh, that was a very important step in my process. And in the end, when I did my thesis, which was just this past summer, um, June, July, and August, I overcame all of those patterns of behavior and all of those shadows, and I crushed it. I, I worked so hard, so diligently, and I loved it. I had no anxiety, no stress. When I finished, I remember thinking to myself, I actually don't care what anyone says about how this is because I know how it is for me. I poured everything I had into it. I wrote it for me and I wrote it for Gandhi. Gandhi, I, I called in as my spiritual advisor because I did my, my thesis on be the change on that wisdom. And when I finished, I felt so complete. It was like, it doesn't matter what happens from here. I, I have done exactly what I, what I wanted to do. And that wrapped up my, essentially four-year, full-time, personal growth, spiritual journey. And now I'm back in Cape Town and I'm, I, I'm just so full of joy and, and bliss and gratitude. And it's been such an amazing journey. And, and now I get to decide what's next. You know, and there's so many ways to serve and so many ways to help. Wow. What an incredible, incredible four years. I have so many questions. Um, I think I want to start off by asking, looking back on it, did you, did, do you feel the order that you did it in was the best possible order? I haven't reflected on that. My hunch is yes. But I think it's important not to overly try and prescribe these things because we just have to trust that, that the way that things are going to unfold will just unfold beautifully. If I had, I, when I started my journey, I had no idea I was going to study positive psychology. You know, when I started my journey, I actually did a video five years ago last week that um, I was at the airport in Hong Kong. I was leaving Bali and I was announcing to the world that I was quitting my job. This is like September, 2017 or October. And in that video interview, I look back at it now and I, I I had a hunch, but I was I had no clue where that was going to take me. I was more focused on at that time. I wanted to climb the seven summits, the seven tallest peaks on the seven continents. I I I knew I would do personal growth along the way, but I had no idea where that where that journey would take me. And it was shaped by so many incredible people along the way. You know, I met I met a woman at a at a table. A, table at a cafe in Dharamkot, uh, near uh, where you've been, um, I'm sure near Tushita. And, um, she had this glow about her, uh, Shafali and she, and I said, you're glowing. Like what's going on in your life that has you so light. And, and she's like, I just finished my yoga teacher training. And I was like, okay. And then someone else came and joined her. And then, uh, I asked them, Hey, did you also go to the yoga teacher training? They said, yeah. And then one by one, 10 people walked in and they each recounted their experience at this yoga teacher training. I signed up that night. You know, I didn't know that I was going to study yoga. I had no intention of doing that up till that point. And, uh, and I went. So 
I feel like a journey like that is best done with very little planning and just a lot of humility and a lot of trust. And then just flow with wherever the universe takes you. Everyone has their own path, you know? Um, yeah. The Specifically to your question, I think the fact that I went East and studied Buddhism, yoga, and, and a bit of ancient wisdom first before I did the masters was brilliant because I actually came to, to really value ancient wisdom and value the Eastern view. And it made it so much harder to digest the positive psychology view, but in a way that caused me to like try and consistently reconcile what I saw as different views. Like, you know, just to highlight one, one of the main components of well-being, according to Martin Seligman's construct, is achievement or accomplishment. And I think that's actually born out of traditional psychology where people who are depressed felt better after they after they accomplished things and did things. And so I'm I'm being asked to believe that um or to at least consider that achievement is important in life. Meanwhile, my whole life story says that achievement is the wrong thing to chase, right? And then in, in a lot of Eastern wisdom, we need to let go of our attachments to these achievements. And so I spent a whole year trying to reconcile that. And um, there were many things like that along the way that made it a very rich experience for me where I didn't just take things as fact, you know, I really question them. And I think it's also about how you compare things, right? Because if you look at achievement in positive psychology, someone might think about professional achievement, right? But like me doing the laundry could be an achievement. Like it could be an action. For me, I I still believe that action decreases anxiety to an extent. because it it might just be there's certain things left undone, tabs in your head that you need to get finished in order to get over that. And in Buddhism, at least where we both spent some time in Kopan, I had duties for the 10 days that I was there, right? Now those duties I could consider as accomplishments, right? If I, if I scrub the floor, if I clean the dishes, like these are all things that you're accomplishing something, but you're accomplishing something that's also contributing to the happiness and the well-being and just making people's lives easier, right? You're serving. So I think when it comes to comparing like Eastern and Western uh, thinking, I think also the degree to how we do it and like making it, I suppose, as subjective as possible um, could often be probably a right way, right way to think about it. What do you think? Uh, I, I completely agree. The in ancient Greek and Athenian philosophy, Aristotle, Socrates, those peeps, um, they believe that wisdom is the master virtue, right? That is the most important virtue. And that if you are fully wise, you won't suffer in any way, all right? And this discussion of achievement, I've realized that when I struggle to reconcile things, it's generally the case that I'm just not at a level of awareness or understanding that I can make sense of them. So the confusion and the struggle that I had 
wasn't necessarily that there are inherent contradictions, but more so just a, a recognition of where I was at in my journey, you know, that I wasn't able to eloquently weave together the story that you just did about actions, accomplishments, and achievements, and how they play a role in, in life, ancient and modern. So now when I, when I become frustrated and I, and I feel like something's misaligned, I try and say to myself, well, what am I, what could I be missing that, you know, where this contradiction actually isn't a contradiction at all? Yeah, totally. That makes sense. When you look at, when you look at all of your experiences, learnings over the last four years, I'm not going to ask you for your takeaways necessarily, because I'm sure there's a hundred of them, but what you've implemented into your day-to-day life, what does that look like? Like, are there any particular habits that you've created that are super valuable, you know, in your daily routine now that maybe the listeners as well could, could take something away from? Yeah, there's so much. I, I've been blessed to be mentored by someone named Brian Johnson, who started a company called Optimize. He created a, which basically summarizes personal growth books. Um, it's like six page PDFs, 25 minute audio files or video files. And he takes like all the books from ancient wisdom and modern science that focus on how to live a great life. And he summarizes it to make it more accessible. And I found it super valuable. Then he developed a coaching program from it called Optimize Coach. Now it's called Heroic Coach. And I've been so blessed. He was my advisor for my master's thesis to learn from him. And he is literally like a world expert on habit formation, productivity, and everything else. He's built an incredible app called Heroic that has changed my life that I have invested in. Um, it's basically a kind of all-in-one personal accountability partner. It's like having your own guru or sage that comes with you on your journey throughout the day, reminding you of who you want to be at your best and offering wisdom as you go. Um it, it literally, my life is not the same. I use Heroic every single morning. It's the first thing I do. Every last thing I do when I go to bed, it manages my whole day. So as a result of using technology and, and some great mentorship, my, my day is quite regimented. Um, I try and sleep between nine and 10 hours every day. That's based on a lot of science that says <clears throat> we are way undersleeped as a society. Americans sleep 6.7 hours currently. And evolutionarily, <clears throat> up until the invention of the light bulb 150 years ago, we would have slept about 10 hours. We would have slept according to the rhythm of the sun. And now lights and, and screens and blue light trick our body into thinking it's much earlier in the day. And so the natural process of producing melatonin does not kick in. And as a result, we don't feel sleepy. And so we um, sleep way too little. And the, the damage that's done when you sleep, uh, the first thing that heals is your body. And the last thing that heals is your mind. So you always have deep sleep first in the night, and then you have the REM sleep. So we've cut off three hours of potentially brain healing, incredible amazingness. And so I am super committed to getting my sleep. That's my, that's my highest priority. 
And to get good sleep, as Brian likes to say, uh, it starts the night before. So I eat dinner early. I eat dinner about 5, 5.30 p.m. I stop using devices at 7 p.m. I actually have an alarm that goes off every day at 7 p.m. that says, shut off all your devices. Um, I meditate before I go to bed. And I'm usually asleep 8.30 or 9 o'clock. I have an aura ring. Uh, so I track my sleep every night to see how I did. And then when I wake up, I wake up at 6 a.m. And I meditate for an hour. Um, I haven't always done that. But in the, in the last five months, that's been my, my protocol. Um, my advisor said, Joe, an hour is easy if you do it first thing in the morning before anyone's awake. Like you can easily slam an hour of meditation. So I made a commitment to him for the duration of my master's thesis that I would do it. And it, I found it so easy, actually, that I just, I just continued it. Then I, um, I do some form of exercise, usually a walk. I live on the beach, so I can go for a walk down the beach. I do a, something that I got from positive psychology, actually, um, is I actually dance every morning to two songs in my room or in the living room or wherever. And I find that the combination of this meditative period, the exercise period and the dance creates this thing that that's called energized tranquility, um, where you're full of all this like positive neurochemicals and hormones, and you're really, really pumped up. You've slept well, you've exercised, and yet you're calm because you've meditated. And I feel like that's such a beautiful place to exist, energized tranquility. And then I, I have a certain type of breakfast that I have every day, um, a whole bunch of probiotics and supplements. And then what I do is, and this is my, my favorite part of the wisdom I've learned from, from Heroic and Brian Johnson is before I respond to any emails or before I check any WhatsApps or any SMSs, I do two hours of deep, intensive, focused work in 25-minute Pomodoro chunks with breaks, five-minute breaks. And the point of that is before you allow yourself to re become reactive, to just like, oh, no, someone wants this and someone wants this, it can spiral your whole day out of control and you can lose focus on what's important. So take the time before you open up that whole Pandora's box to do the most important work that you know you need to do that day. And so that, we call that deep work. Um, it's from a book called Deep Work from Cal Newport. And that is how I approached my master's thesis. I would do three, two-hour deep work sessions a day, um, broken up by hour to hour and a half nature or fitness exercises. And it, it served me incredibly well. So I will be chunking my work days forever now. I will never work more than two hours straight. Uh, I'll never work more than really 30 minutes straight, but two hours in a, in a kind of a work block. And I will always take adequate breaks for fitness, nature, and other things like meditation, other things that energize me. I love it. I love it. No, no, no. That was perfect because I'm, as the listeners know, I'm obsessed with my morning and evening routine. Um, very committed to it. And the reason I'm committed to it is because it really, really works for me. And uh, it's it's relatively similar, similar to yours. I, I listen to a lot of uh, Andrew Huberman and uh, a lot of key takeaways there from him as well, just in regards to sleep and exercise and light exposure. Um, 
as well as you know caffeine and and all these sort of things. Um, but what you one of the things you said that resonated was the was the dance piece because I took a meditation teaching course about two years ago, and every day we did a dancing meditation, and that feeling that you just described is something that I now now can label because I was like this feeling is incredible like I feel so energized but I feel so calm at the same time and so happy but so calm at the same time. Um, so that's really cool. I love that. And also on the deep work part, I think the deep work part and the no phone part, I think are two things that are very important. What I've, what I've really tried to do is to protect my peace. So the way that I tend to go about this is very similar to what you do is I don't look at my phone first thing in the morning because you get the distractions and you get the message from your bank or from, you know, your parents or from work or wherever it is. Um, so being able to, to stay in your peace after you finish your meditation and your exercise and your breakfast for a sustained amount of time is something that's tricky, right? Because a lot of people do the meditation in the morning, they get in their car and get road rage, right? Or they get to, they get to the office and they have an argument with their boss. So trying to at least control the first part of your day is already a massive step. Now, you can't be too hard on yourself. Like if you get road rage, you get road rage. Like just acknowledge it, try to address it the best you can. Same with the argument with your boss. Are there any other like tips of advice that you would have in order for someone to protect their peace throughout the day? Like any sort of thought patterns that you may have that, that you think are beneficial? I think it's challenging to live our best lives without help. It's very hard to rely on willpower alone to, to live up to our potential. I think we need support from those around us, right? If you're living in an environment with people who have very bad habits, behaviors, late bedtimes, um, distracting mornings, it's going to be very hard for you to be disciplined and follow your practices. Another way, so controlling like the people in your life, you know, who do you spend time with and what kind of routines are they on is hugely important. Another thing is, you know, I have the heroic app. It holds me accountable. I know, for example, that today I only meditated 30 minutes. I did two 15-minute sessions, actually three now, three 15-minute sessions today. I didn't do my normal hour block because I hosted a late dinner last night. And I have this app that that reminds me, Joe, uh, you want to go in the cold water today because that's what you said when you woke up. So do it today. And then when you do it, celebrate you know, and swipe it. So uh, before this call, I went in the ocean for 20 minutes and get to swipe that one. Um, so having some sort of accountability routine, I use an app. You can use paper and pencil. You can have your friends hold you accountable. Um, there's lots of ways, but I, I think if you really want to be disciplined and live a great life, you need some sort of accountability. And when you say the, the celebration piece, I love, like when you, when you do accomplish something, no matter how little it is, celebrate it. What does that look like for you? If you've seen The Social Dilemma, you know, Tristan Harris was a researcher at Google and they studied basically how to keep people as engaged as possible. 
so that they could maximize ad revenue. And they found that basically dopamine, you know, is a surefire way to get people hooked. Um, there's other books in, in a book called Hooked by Near, you know, and, um, and so our devices are, have incredible potential, but they can be used for not so good things and they can be used for great things. And so the heroic app actually gives you a great haptic feedback dopamine hit. You actually get to pull back an arrow and shoot it at a target when you hit your target. Um, so inherent in that app experience is a celebratory mechanism. Another thing we do is we like to say, that's like me. So people in the heroic world uh, who follow Brian's teachings, when they do something that they know is amazing, that's, they say, that's like me. You know, I'm the type of person that does that, you know? So, and when I go to bed, um, I'll take a screenshot, send it to Brian or send it to some, some other people who, who use heroic and say, today I did 107 virtuous activities, uh, which was my, my score two days ago. And, um, I'm proud of it. You know, that, that if you see that I hit anything over 80 virtuous activities in a day, which is what they track and what they keep and what they care about, which is they track annual recurring virtue instead of annual recurring revenue. If I've done more than 80 virtuous acts, I guarantee you I've had a masterpiece day. I have slept well. I've ate well. I've exercised well. I've connected well with friends. I've done deep work. I've been creative before I've reacted to inputs. All of those things are, are summed up in how I show up in using my accountability tracker. Yeah, totally. And I, I love that little celebration that you mentioned. I, I actually use that sentence before I do something difficult. So if I, if I wake up early, uh, like today, I woke up early, I have to go for a run. There's always going to be times where you don't want to do it, right? And for me, the one thing I told myself was, this is what I do. This is what I do. and then. And then magic starts happening. Exactly. Um, Joseph, where can people find out more about you or maybe your work or you have a website that people can go to? Yeah. So I spent 40 years as a caterpillar trying to climb to the top of a caterpillar pile and trying to be the biggest, baddest, most hyper-achieving caterpillar. Then I, I, I realized that um, that was very unfulfilling and that something was missing. And I said, well, yeah, I don't even know what the purpose of being a caterpillar is. Let me just be honest and say, I don't know what I'm supposed to do as a caterpillar. I'm just going to surrender and trust that going up on the wall and, and closing down and going into hibernation and going into cocoon is going to lead to something beautiful. I've never done it before. This is the first time. It feels in my heart and my soul that this is the right thing for me. Then I spent five years in a cocoon. That's what this last 2017 to now. I've been just weird things have been happening. I can tell it's not it's not time yet to like try and spread this wing. You know, it's 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 gooey, it's not dry. And so for me now. I'm just coming out of the cocoon, like website, sharing my wisdom, all of that stuff. I didn't feel that I had the right level of wisdom to share while I was in the cocoon. Now I'm coming out and I will be doing all of that stuff. 
So long answer to the question, in the, sh- in the short term, LinkedIn, Facebook, any of the usual channels. I'm not super active on social media, but I'd like to be more active. Um, and I will have a website coming. Um, my, my primary love and passion right now is founding startups. I'm uh, sorry, funding startups and coaching and mentoring founders and trying to help them fulfill their dreams, specifically startups that I think really will impact the world in a positive way. Um, and so that's where I'm spending most of my time, but I, I, I love sharing wisdom. I love telling my story. Uh, I'll, I'll be much more out there now that I'm getting ready to spread my wings. I love it. And we can't wait for you to spread your wings and especially for people to then follow along with your journey, learn more from your wisdom. And in the meantime, you know, check Joe out on LinkedIn, check him out on Facebook. And, and we'll also disclose all the different links to all the different teachings that you've mentioned, all the different courses that you've mentioned. I think it's all going to be very, very valuable information. Thank you so much for being here today, Joe. Beautiful. Thank you, Stefan.